you don't know me, my name's Greg. I'm on the team here. I want to say Rebecca did a great job. It's her first time. She's part of our teaching team. Uh, you may not know this, but we actually um, have got a whole group of people that are being developed, and Rebecca is one of them. Dave, you did a great job. What a great, I mean, even for a non-jogger, I was impressed. <laughs> I jogged once. That was to the fridge and back, but I uh, ran out of breath. So, no, but what great thought how we run out of steam. In fact, what you had to say, Dave, and Beck, what you just said around the offering is part of where I want to go today because it is all about the heart. And sometimes we run out of steam as Christians. And I'm going to explore a little bit about that today. And uh, as I said, you're getting a handout that you'll be able to fill in as we go. Um, our theme for this year is deeper. And if you were not here two weeks ago, I encourage you to jump on our website. You can link through to our sermons there, our audio sermons there. And Pastor Charles actually presented the vision for us uh, for this, uh, this year, 2020. And it was the idea of being deeper in God, in our relationship with God. How do we go deeper in God? And really, that's a great question because it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, you can still go deeper in God. It doesn't matter whether you're a brand new believer and you're still trying to figure out your relationship with God, you can go deeper with God. Or if you're here today and you have no relationship with God, you're not really sure what we're talking about or why we sing some songs and, you know, we did the, the juice and the biscuit as a, as a memorialization and a celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't fully understand that, you feel that God wouldn't maybe even love you, well, you can go deeper with God as well. It doesn't matter where we are or where we think we are in our spectrum, we can all go deeper with God. And so I'm going to talk a little bit around that theme, but I do encourage you, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, um, please listen to, to Charles's sermon around that as well. So today, uh, actually, Talisha, go to the second slide. We'll do the video in just a second. I'm going to talk about the first two steps of going deeper with God. You can see that the title there on your outline sheet that you've just been handed as well. So if you, actually, if you need a pen, you want to take notes, just put your hand up. I'll get our host. There's one down here. Thanks, guys. So anything, anyone else need a pen? One over here as well. John, up the front on my, your right. A couple here as well. We have some pens there. Just keep your hands up. They'll get one to you. If they don't get one, just wave. I want to follow on with the theme of, I've called it the first two steps of going deeper with God, but I have to be honest with you. I wanted to really call it the most easy steps. I also wanted to really call it the continual steps because it's not just the first two steps that I'm going to bring out today from Deuteronomy. I want to, when I was studying and, and, you know, for the last couple of weeks I've been meditating on the whole Deuteronomy chapter 6 passage, I thought, well, this is what God asks us to do all the time. Whether I'm, or whether I'm a, or I think I'm a mature Christian, a new Christian, or I don't really know what God is, but I'm trying to explore who God is, these two steps is really what we all need to be continually doing and encouraging each other to do, and they're not that complicated. Sometimes in Christianity, we make things more complicated than we need to. They're actually quite simple, but there's something that we should be doing every single day, no matter how long we've been on a journey with God. They're essential. So whether you 
whether you feel like you're great with God or far from God, I'm going to give you just two steps. But I pray, hope and believe that you'll continually practice them for the rest of your days in your relationship with God. Now, how this whole talk came together for me is three years ago, Sue and I were in Israel. We did a tour and uh, we've got another tour coming up in a couple of months. Who's coming to Israel with us? Look at that. We've got, actually, we've got about, how many of you here? We've got about 23, 24. Um, so we leave in May. But when Sue and I were there three years ago, we did a number of things. But one of the things that really sort of brought my, got, got my attention, we went to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, which, of course, is part of the construction, um, supporting construction of the ancient temple, which has now been destroyed. It was destroyed probably by the Romans in 70 AD when they invaded. And so the temple itself's not there, but there's some supporting structures still um, at a lower level. And so, of course, you see it on the news and the media quite a bit where you see the Orthodox Jewish people going there to pray. And they write little prayers on notes and they actually push it into the cracks of this ancient wall. And so our group was at the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Um, it was about a four, we got there about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. We did that intentionally because we wanted to be there when Sabbath kicks in. So Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. on Friday and runs all the way through until 6 p.m. on Saturday. So, of course, Orthodox Jews practice the Sabbath ritualistically. And so a lot of them come to that part of Jerusalem at the Western Wall at the start of Sabbath. And so in the end, it was like a, it was a great atmosphere. By the time it got to like 6.37... It was like a party atmosphere. It was totally different to what I expected. But about 4.30, so we'd been there about half an hour, and um, they have a sort of split between where the men can go and the women can go. So Sue went with our ladies into the ladies' group. I was in the men's section, and um, I noticed this was going on. So I'm going to show you a short video because I actually filmed it. So have a look at this, and then I'm going to explain what was happening there. So that's a rabbi, and he's tying a little black box onto the arm and onto the forehead of a Jewish man who's come to pray at the start of Sabbath. So here comes the one around the forehead. Now you just watch this man, he'll pray a blessing On himself and then the rabbi ties it around his fingers I'm going to show you again just replay that for a few Talisha let me explain what it is because I didn't know what it was at first so I, I you know I got home from my trip and I'm looking this whole thing up the little black box that gets tied on his forearm and when there's one on his forehead is called a telfilin Telfilin. It's actually a very small black cube. Inside the cube, it has a scroll or handwritten four portions of um, scriptures for the Jews, which we call the Old Testament. And I think there's, there's one verse out of their Mishnah as well that's inside that box. The actual box and strap have to be made by a specialist, so you can't just walk into a $2 shop and buy one. It's a holy religious artifact for Orthodox Jews. And they actually come with a certificate that they've been made properly by an authorised 
um, rabbi because of the enormous religious um, significance they have. Now, the one on the arm is put on first. It's actually put on your weaker arm. So if you're right-handed like me, it'll be put on your left arm as a, as a male. By the way, only the males do this. Um, and then, of course, you saw the man pray a blessing, and this is what he prayed. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to put on the telphalim. So they get that out of Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at that verse today because they take part of that verse literally. So the head one is loosely fastened, usually um, above actually your normal hairline. So fellas, if you were an Orthodox Jew and you were balding, they still put it on where your original hairline was. They sort of ignore the receding hairline. And there's four texts inside that box that are handwritten. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that's what we're going to look at today. But if you're taking notes, they also minusculely write on this very small piece of paper, Exodus 13, verses 1 to 10. Um, Exodus 13, 11 to 16. And also, um, as I said, a part of the Mishnah, which I, I won't read out at the moment. At some point in history... The orthodox expression of Jewish beliefs felt that this was something they literally had to do and they took it from Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it actually says to wear it, put it on your doorpost, wear the commands of God. And so over, as history developed after, of course, this command is given um, just before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they came up with a system probably hundreds of years later but a good Jewish man would recite that this prayer at least seven times or wear it seven times. If you were especially holy, you could do it a couple of hundred times a day. Before your child could speak, you teach them Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, because as an Orthodox Jew, you want the first words that come out of their mouth to be those. Unlike my children, one of them, their first word was McDonald's. That's true. true story. This is how seriously they take the command out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. When a person is dying in their culture, they encourage them to repeat Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 because they want their last words on this earth to be those verses. When an Israelite was martyred in history, the people around them that were Jewish would shout this verse out continuously as that person was being killed for their faith or for any other reason. In their synagogue services, they begin their service with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. So it's a very important verse for Orthodox Jews. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read it together. It'll come up on the screen. But I know many of you have different translations you prefer, which is, which is fine. No problem with that. But as you turn there, let me just tell you some background of where this announcement is made. So, of course, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament we call them. Jews call them the Holy Scriptures. And it's the fifth book or the last book that's attributed to Moses doing a lot of the writing. And of course, they've been wandering the wilderness now for 40 years. So we read, I read just before Exodus 15, they'd only just entered the wilderness. They're sort of three, four days into their journey uh, when we read that bit. Now we're 40 years later, a generation later, they're standing on the edge of the land that God has promised to give to them. 
the, the, what we call the promised land. But that land is actually inhabited by other people groups, other tribes that worship many different types of gods. And so Moses is very careful in his old age, and we know Moses passes away and doesn't enter the promised land with them, but before they start on their conquest to, to take on the promised land, Moses re-preaches the covenant that they have with Yahweh. And it, effectively, there's three long sermons in Deuteronomy of Moses reminding the people of what God had said to them 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. In fact, the word Deuteronomy literally means a second telling of the law. That word itself literally means a second telling of the law, Deuteronomy. So that's the context. Moses wants the next generation, so the children that are in this crowd, to understand who God is. Because if, he's, if their parents don't keep their covenant with God, how is the next generation going to know who God is and to keep their relationship with God, particularly as now they're about to be exposed to many other gods as they try and conquer the promised land. So just a couple of verses. There's a lot more, obviously, which you can read, but let's have a look at from verse 4. Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Now, let me pause there for a minute. The word is, at the end of that sentence, is inserted there by translators. It literally reads, Elohim Yahweh, Elohim one. There is no is, because sometimes when we read it in our modern translations, we think that proves or disproves the Trinity. It gets used quite a bit. But again, in context, what God is telling them, because they're about to enter a land that they've never been to before, where there are different tribes worshipping a multitude of gods. He is saying, I'm the first and the only. That's literally what it means in Hebrew, that word one. So the first thing he reminds them is, I'm the first and only, not those other gods. And of course, you know, if you read any part of the Old Testament, you know God is continually warning his children not to worship those other gods. He is alone, the one true God. So that's what that first sentence means. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord first, only, exclusive. That's covenant relationship. Now, verse 5 is interesting. The very first, the very next thing he says to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You may have heard that many, many times. Jesus repeats this commandment. Uh, I think nearly in all four Gospels it gets repeated because Jesus reteaches this particular Deuteronomy verse, Jesus would have known it very well as a rabbi. Jesus was a trained rabbi. But look at verse 6, and this is where that video that I filmed that you just saw, this is where they take this component literally in Orthodox Judaism. These commandments that I give to you today to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, of course, at that time, they didn't have houses. They're wandering in the wilderness, but they're about to enter the promised land. Now, this verse, particularly verse 4 and 5, we're going to park there for today. Verse 4 and 5 literally is called the Shema. And it's the first word... Here, 
So the Hebrew word, we're going to learn some Hebrew today. The Hebrew word for here is shama. Everyone say shama. You got to say it down here, not up here. Don't be a typical Aussie that swallows your word. You got to you got to almost spit on the back of the person's head in front of you, right? Shama. Now Jewish people have prayed this prayer. Listen to me carefully. Every morning and every evening for thousands of years. Those two verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. They've, they've been praying, they still pray that prayer twice a day, morning and evening. Orthodox Jews still pray this prayer. It is called the Shema. But the name of the prayer comes from the very first word, hear. Listen. So I did a bit of research on this Hebrew word. It's fascinating. Let me tell you a couple of things. You would think it just means sound waves going into my ear. But it actually carries a lot more weight than that. Shema in Hebrew scriptures is normally connected to the ear. So let me give you a couple of verses. They won't come on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you can add them. Proverbs 20, verse 12, says the ear that shema, so I'm going to use the Hebrew word, the ear that listens... And the eye that sees, the Lord has made them both. So Shema is very much connected to your two ears in Hebrew. Very simple meaning. In other words, sound waves go in and you, you conceptualize what's been spoken and you hear it. But Shema can also mean pay attention and focus. Now, how many parents out there that sometimes when you say to your children, listen, and they don't, so then you go, Will you listen? Or I'm talking to you, right? It's got this sort of tone about it of like pay attention and focus on what you're hearing. So it's more than just the sound waves and your comprehension. It's you actually focusing on what you're hearing. In fact, right now, you are Shema from what I'm saying, right? You're focusing. So it's not just hearing. You're focusing on what you're hearing. So, now a couple of um, weeks ago, Nathan preached a very good sermon around um, being childlessness and trying to understand how do we respond to barrenness. And he mentioned Leah in the Old Testament. Of course, Leah married Jacob, but wasn't, was unloved by Jacob. Now listen to what she says when she gives birth to her son Simon. This is what she says to God. The Lord has shamed listen, that I am unloved. So, Shema can mean hearing. When you read Old Testament word, listen or hear in the Old Testament, it means your ear, it means responding, but it also means God acts on my behalf. In fact, part of his name, Simon, is, has this concept of God responding. So, Shema is paying attention and responding. Now, that's in Genesis 22, 39, if you want to look up that story of Leah thanking God that he has shamed, that she is unloved by her husband by giving her a son. In Psalm 27, verse 7, it's the same concept. In fact, a lot of the Psalms start with the word shema. Listen, hear, O God. So, this is, one of them is in Psalm 27, verse 7 says, Shema my voice, O Lord. Hear my voice. 
Hear when I cry out and have mercy. Answer me. So asking God to shema is also asking God to act on your behalf. More than listening, more than focusing, more than you responding, it's actually when we say to God, listen to me, we want him to actually do something on our behalf. So this is also very similar when God asks us as his people, the children of Israel, particularly say at, at Mount Sinai, he says to them in Exodus 19 verse 5, so this is right at the start of that covenant, he says to them, and now if you shema me and keep my covenant, you will be my special possession out of all the nations. So if you respond, not just hear me, but if you keep, if you do. So in ancient Hebrew, there's actually no word for obey. They use the word shema. And so when the, when, the, when the Hebrews or Moses is preaching this to the mass of the children of Israel about to enter the promised land, they know the weight of the meaning of the word. When God says, hear, shema, I am the Lord, one, first, only, exclusive. Love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your strength. They understood the weight behind the word shema. So in actual fact, Listening and obeying is the same thing. Two, side, two sides of the one coin, if you like, according to the Hebrew language and understanding. So, of course, what's, what's interesting, there's a negative explanation of Shema because we, many of us in this room today know the story of the Israelites that would regularly, over different long periods of time, break their covenant with God. They would be unfaithful and start worshipping other gods um, of the nations that were around them or that captured them. They would intermarry, which brought other belief systems into um, you know, the exclusivity of the relationship covenant they have with Yahweh. And so what's interesting is God uses it in a negative term. You'll be familiar with this, this phrase because the Old Testament uses it regularly, the prophets. Jesus said this. Paul says this in his New Testament letters. They have ears, but they don't shema. So you can have ears, but you're not, you're not responding. You've heard me, but isn't our relationship, well, that's what it is. It's a relationship. So, of course, Jesus talks about it. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah use this phrase, they have ears, but they cannot shema. Or will not shema. Jesus says it about the Pharisees. The prophets say about the Israelites. Paul talks about it actually in Acts and in Romans where he's explaining the history of how Jesus, why Jesus came and who Jesus is that the Israelites did not shema God. And so he sent his one and only son. So they could hear just fine, but they're not actually really listening because if they did they would live very differently. Aren't we exactly the same? We hear the words of God. We comprehend, we understand. Our ears are working fine. But there are times where we're not, we don't shema. When I, when, I was, when I was studying all this, I thought, that's me sometimes. So nothing to do with my ability to auditory hear 
It's got to do with my heart, my soul, and my strength. So really, the first thing, the first out of the two steps, is you have to listen to him. Here's step one. I'll come up on the screen because it's not there. And you have to live what he says. It's the same word. They're not two separate ideas. They're all embedded together. If you listen and you said you've heard, then you're going to live that way. Your life, your choices, your attitude, your behaviour, your decision, what you do with who you are and all of your resource is going to be impacted if you shamar what God has said to us. It's got to be obvious. It's lived out. It's not just received through your eardrum. It's a response from our heart. So the first step is to listen to him and to live out what he says. God says, Shema, hear and obey. Hear and follow. Don't just re-quote or comprehend. So this is the, one of the main things about our expression of Christianity is we're not a religious system. We're not a mechanical religious system. We have a relationship and so, when, so for when God spoke to me on Wednesday about praying for everybody who was sick in our service today, I had to shamar. It wasn't up to, I can't say no to God. Well, I can. Sometimes I do. But he always wins, doesn't he? Don't try and argue with him, by the way. You don't get very far. Shamar. God says, listen and you'll live differently. Act it out. It's got to be obvious, not just to him, but to all of us, that we are in covenant relationship with the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's Shema. Now, the second part of that verse, where it says, so God says, so here, Shema Israel, Elohim Yahweh Elohim One, so God the Lord is only exclusive, no other gods. But then the very next thing He says is, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It fascinates me that it's connected to him saying that he's one, or the exclusive covenant relationship he wants with, his, with the Israelites, and of course with us through his son Jesus. And so here's the second thing. And I'm going I'm to unpack it, but let me tell you what it is first. The second step in growing deeper with God, come up on the screen, is you love God with your muchness. Now, I know that's not good English. In fact, I think I just invented a new word. Very religious, spiritual term. Love God with your muchness. Tell, tell your person you're sitting next to, love God with your muchness. Shema. Love God with your muchness. That is wholehearted, life-encompassing passion. We're not a religion in the dictionary sense of the word. Now, we are a religion because we believe in a certain God and we are following that God, but how we follow that God is different from every other God. We are not following our God in fear that if we don't do it, he'll get us, which, by the way, most other religions, that's why they follow their God. They have to appease their God. They've got to bring sacrifices to their God. They've got to make sure their God is happy. Or their God has certain elements of life that they can fix. Prosperity, health, wellness, business, 
And so some cultures, as many of you well know, they have many gods. I remember one time I was in Mauritius ministering there and I met the pastor of the church, took me to a lady's house who had just become a Christian that week. And on the shelf in her, in her living room was all the Hindus' gods and right at the end was a statue of Jesus. So she sort of added Jesus to all the others as a brand new Christian. But they live in fear of God, their gods. We don't live in fear of our God. Our God loves us. We're not, he's, we're not supposed to be afraid of him in the fierce sense of the word. We're certainly in awe of him and we reverence God. We're not glib, but it's a relationship of love. That's the very thing that God's trying to tell the Israelites and I believe trying to remind us today, again, whether you've been a Christian a long time, new Christian, or you don't know God, he loved us before we loved him. This is not a relationship built on fear and appeasement. It's a relation, our, our religion, I don't like the word religion, but our, our covenant with him is because of his love for us first. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we don't have time, but in Deuteronomy, he regularly throughout Moses' sermon, he keeps reminding them the only reason God's given the Israelites a covenant is because he loves them. It's, it's got nothing to do with appeasement. We're not, you know, Christianity is not a set of rules. It's a relationship with a loving God. Shema, do you hear that? Are you going to respond to the love that God has for us? And look, if I can be brutally honest, forgive me. Sometimes, you know, the older we are as Christians, we get a bit crusty on the outside, don't we? That's not right. That person shouldn't have done that, said this. What are they doing? How come the church isn't doing that? Or We're so critical. It's a relationship of love with God. The same grace that he's given to us, we're supposed to give to others. Because it's, it's all love. That's the very first thing. When he says to the, through Moses, he says to the children of Israel, Shema, Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim, just me. I'm the only God. Love me. He doesn't say do a whole list of things. We have to love him. Now, why do I say muchness? Why did I make that word up? It's a great word, by the way, isn't it? In, in, in a, quite a few of the different uh, theological commentaries I was studying around this word, it, what's interesting is this word is normally translated, love the Lord with all your heart, mind and strength. That last word, strength, I'll park there just for a moment. It's normally translated, that word strength is, in Hebrew is not normally translated strength in the Old Testament. It's normally translated as very. Your veryness. You can write that one down as well. Let's make up a few words today. You love God with all of your veryness. Tell, tell the person you're sitting next to, love God with all your veryness. We might as well keep going. Veryness, muchness. Now, here's what I think the problem is, because I've been in church life, you know, a couple of years now. When we read that verse, either in Deuteronomy, or we reread when Jesus restates it, reteaches it, the most important, if you want to, of course, he was asked about what, you know, all the commandments. And he says, well, it's just love God, love others, right? But he's, Jesus restates the Shema, this prayer that he's praying morning and evening, He's a Jewish rabbi. 
he restates it when the Pharisees ask him, or I can't remember exactly who asked him off the top of my head, but he restates this because what we tend to do is when we read it, we split it into three compartments. So what, you know, you may have heard sermons on it. I know I have. So, you know, you've got to love God with your heart. This is your heart. This is what it is. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to love God with your soul. Your soul's your personality or your spirit. So you've got to love God with that. And you've got to love God with your strength and your physical body. So you've got to love with God with that. But when the Jews read this, or when they even first heard this, that was not in their thinking. That's actually a Greek concept. It came many centuries later where the Greeks were trying to explain the human physical body or being, the whole being, and what's it composed of. And so some of this Greek teaching that, you know, like the flesh is evil, which is not our teaching, by the way, uh, you know, our flesh is fallen, but it's God created. But some of this idea of let's split or compartmentalize our being into three or four separate groups is not in the Hebrew way of thinking. In fact, it's the opposite. What these three things are teaching is, in fact, all of you, every aspect of your being has to love God. You can't just chip it up into different parts. Well, today I'm going to love God with my heart because at the moment my personality is not really liking Him that much. That's not what it's teaching, but that's, we hear this sort of stuff. It's wrong. It's not in the Hebrew way of thinking. So let me tell you a couple of things about why they don't split it up and what were they hearing when it was first taught to them by Moses. The word heart in Hebrew doesn't mean what it means in English. Now, I know it's Valentine's weekend, right? Anyone have a good Valentine's Day? Well, I'm about to blow your bubble. Because the word heart doesn't mean heart. As we, so this is a, what, what in the Western world, we've picked up the ancient Greek concept for heart. But the Hebrew concept for heart, get this, you want to write this down, it's your mind. It's what you think. It's got nothing to do with how you feel, which is what, how we use the word. It's actually the seat of your capacity to reason something out. So every time you read the word heart in the Old Testament, it's your thoughts, your reasoning power, your intellect. So when God says, love me with all your heart, he's not saying, let's have Valentine's Day together. He's saying, I want you to think about how you interact with me. I want you to think. Make choices based on your ability to reason out how to express your love towards me. That's how they understood it. The word soul in Hebrew, doesn't mean personality and all. I don't know if you've heard other teachings on it. I certainly have. It actually is your whole person in Hebrew. In fact, if anything, I want you to follow me here. If anything, what God is telling them is not here's a list of three things that make you up and every, every part of those three things has to love me. He's actually doing it the other way around. He's actually saying, listen, if you really love me, if you Shema, then every part of who you are and what you've got is going to engage with me. That's He's going the other way, not splitting it into three categories. He's grouping every part of our aspect of our life. So the word soul literally means your whole being. Now, that's no, there's no compartmentalization taking place in that word in Hebrew. It's all of you. The Israelites understood this. 
You can't separate your soul from the body. That's what the Greeks taught, which has crept into Western teaching. But for the Israelites and for even Orthodox Jews today, your soul is everything that God made. You. Every aspect of who you are. In fact, in Hebrew, in English, in our scriptures, that same word is normally translated in the Old Testament as your being. So, you've got to love God with your seed of reason. Think it through. You've got to love God with every part of who you are. And the last one that's in this, again, in English, we often pull it out, is your strength. And I've mentioned to you that's your veriness, your muchness. Now, what does that mean? Glad you asked. It literally means, so not just your thinking and not just your whole being, but it means everything, every capacity and resource that you can express that's at your disposal, you include that in how you love God. So it's not physical strength. This has nothing to do with your physical body. So most theologians teach that this is about all your resource. It's a little bit of a dry word resource, I think. It gets overused. But things like your time. It's not part of your physical body, but it's an attribute you've got access to. God wants you to worship and love him with your time. Your abilities, your natural skills and talents that either you were born with or you've developed over your lifetime, God wants you to love him with all of those. It's your muchness. It's everything that you have in your life. Your family. Love God in your family and get your family to love God. In your workplace, whatever you do, love God. Whether you're in church, whether you're at the shopping centre, with your income, your, every part, your muchness, your veriness, every part of your being, God says, that's how you love me. So it's got nothing to do with physical strength or heart as feelings or your soul as your spirit. It's all encompassing. That's the sort of relationship God, well, let me put it this way. He loves us so much, he wants us to love him the same way he loves us. So let me bring this to a close. I'll get the worship guys to come up as well. So it's not a list of three separate ways we can love God. It's actually we love God with our wholehearted, all-encompassing passion all of the time. We're supposed to be excited about life, full of joy because of the God that we have a relationship with. And yet, we forget that God first loved us. Even, even in 1 John, if you're taking notes, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, even John has to remind probably the church at Ephesus he's writing to and, and a few other churches in that district at the time. He says to them, we love God because he first loved us. Our love is responsive to his love. So God says, listen, Shema, and love me. That's all you have to do as a Christian. Listen and love God. Listen, love God. Now, the problem is we, you know, human beings, we like our list of rules, do's and don'ts, expectations, what, you know, what we think church should be or Christians should be act like. or We all face disappointment and frustrations, but Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations. It's not a religious system that we're trying to keep. It's not a code 
We don't get more holy or more righteous by doing things the correct way. We are all sinners saved by grace. That never changes, whether you've been a Christian five seconds or 500 years. Never changes. We're not, it's not mechanical Christianity. It's not lifeless, or dare I say it, it's not loveless. If you're coming to church or going to a small group or even if you're opening your Bible regularly during the week and it's loveless, why are you doing it? It's not the point. We're not like other religions. No appeasement here. He first loved you. And so as I finish this, I want to remind us as we, I know the year started and with this theme of going deeper with God, how do we go deeper with God? We have to listen and do what he says and love him with every passionate part of who we are and what we've got at our disposal. That's what Christianity is. That's how you go deeper. Deeper isn't excluding yourself to pray more, you know, so no one else knows or reading much more of the Bible every week. Those things can help build a relationship, but you do it out of the attitude of you're passionately in love with your God. So when you love someone, it just seeps out of every part of who you are, doesn't it? Except for me this Friday, I forgot it was Valentine's Day. I was so prepared, I had a card written and a gift ready to go, and I was in such a rush Friday morning to get here, we forgot to say Happy Valentine's Day together. But normally it seeps out of me, I'm just saying. When you love someone, I mean, you've seen the way Sue and I interact, it's natural. It's not, we don't have a mechanical relationship. It's not loveless, lifeless. It's not a ritual. We're passionate about each other. That's what God wants. That's the way you get deeper with God. Nothing super spiritual about that, is there? It's every part of who you are is how you love Him. So I'm, I'm going to challenge you, particularly... And I'm talking to myself here, so I'm not pointing a finger at anyone else. But if you've been a Christian for, you know, a decade or longer, don't become rigid. Don't become Krusty the Clown in Christianity version. Be passionate about God and let every part of who you are express that love back to Him because of the depth and unconditional love He is already and continuously showing to you and me. Shema. Listen and love. That's how you go deep with God. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want to bring this service to a close. Just privately, if the Lord has prompted you about something...